Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, I Am the Change I Seek, a primer in self-realization, and the author is Kathleen Suneja, and Kathleen joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Kathleen. Hi, Steve. Great it's to have great you to with us. With you. Well, great to have yeah. you with us. Uh, let me read a couple of things you've written about your book. You say, my book is based on my personal experiences as a dissident activist During the 1970s, I have explained my methods whereby I have achieved self-realization that I have practiced over the years. Among them is meditation and reasoning and finding ways to overcome adversity by utilizing how to overcome adversities. You provide, as you say, the essential steps that you follow to reach this state of knowing and realizing your inner being. These things really... Uh, I guess, propelled you through those years when you were an active dissident uh, activist, uh, political activist in India. So uh, let's go back to that time uh, and tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write your book. Uh, Well, I grew up in a country which was slowly being um, taken over by an expanding uh, Soviet Union that uh, wanted to take over the political system that had previously been relatively free and was being suppressed and becoming uh, increasingly authoritarian or totalitarian in its um, form. And as a young um, teenager, as a 17-year-old, I decided, along with um, others, intellectuals and uh, freedom-loving people, to uh, launch the total revolution in uh, in India, and that uh, slowly uh, spread across uh, boundaries into other uh, countries in this former Soviet bloc, and within the Soviet Union itself. And that was uh, the reason that um, I decided to write this book, because I wanted to share my experiences with others and tell them how difficult it is to stand up for freedom and how important it is to be vigilant against um, any inroads into uh, your civil rights, your political rights, your social rights, and your personal being, because it can slowly and insidiously take your life over, and before you know it, the freedom freedom is easy to lose in um, in society if you don't if you're not vigilant. And it takes enormous um, courage and self-realized actions uh, to fight back and push back against uh, to tyranny. And that's some of the things I describe in the book. And that's why I wanted to write the book, because it's important that it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle, that one can lose freedom at any time in... Um, flash of a, a few months or days by a strong arm or 
authoritarian um, government or state that uh, protecting it is essential to be able to realize uh, true freedom and happiness in our uh, lives. Well, you say that freedom is an internal process that one can achieve only, only by knowing who you are within the inner being. So we really comes back to our value system and how rooted we are. True. I, I felt uh, that you know even when you push back and regain uh, freedom in society, what you do with it with that freedom is an internal process and one can truly realize that process of achieving freedom only within the self. Um, uh, we can end up in chaos or uh, waste away the opportunities that freedom has to offer. A state of freedom within the self is when you achieve true um, liberty or um, self-realized action. And so it really does come down to how a society and each individual who makes up the society um, protects freedom within the self or within his sphere of influence or his uh, or her um, area of uh, expertise. Were you threatened to be arrested? Sure, yes. In fact, I was. I was arrested, and um, so were a a whole group of people. In my book, I I have illustrations of uh, the newspapers that said that about 200 or so people were arrested on one night alone. It was an overnight raid. As a matter of fact, it says 676 people were arrested so far. And on the day that this uh, crackdown against dissident activity occurred, and um, I was one of them. Of course, I avoided arrest for a while, but yeah, I did eventually get arrested as a political prisoner and stayed in a house arrest for almost nine months, after which um, the police uh, commissioner who came to release me was extremely apologetic and said he was just doing his job, but he really did sympathize with my actions, and it was time that you know, he uh, lauded me for my courage in speaking out against the state, and he was a police officer, but he didn't agree with what had been going on in the name of law and order. So it was interesting to see. Um, he was, he even escorted me out uh, to all the way to the um, uh, railway station, and I took the train back home and uh, was reunited with my parents. This principle, this term that you call self-realization, you call it the most valued gift you can give yourself. Uh, Why do you say that? Because um, it's something that will stay with you forever. 
it's something that you will cherish in spite of any material wants and desires that you may not have at any time. Uh, we can be deprived of um, material needs and um, we can face hardship, but self-realization and inner uh, strength is what pulls us through in adversity. And so I think it's it's a gift that, that, that you carry with you all the time. It's never lost. Certainly through a process like this, you could become uh, very angry at the system, uh, and anger often isn't the most productive emotion. How, how, does, how do you overcome anger? That is a, a chapter in my book on anger, and that was a long process. You have, one has to um, work through anger by actually... Uh, finding, redirecting the energy one spends being angry and redirecting it towards more productive actions. Because to dwell on anger and to dwell on disappointments or rage at um, injustices, um, it's, it's a grieving process that can go on forever. You know, grief, anger can turn to grief and turn to disappointment. But one has to be positive at all times and just pick up the pieces and make sure that it, it you move forward in and uh, direct your energy towards um, achieving the goals you set out for yourself in freedom. Um, the, the debts or the people we lost will never come back, but they paid the price. Um, that uh, freedom is never free. It, it is uh, a cost, at a cost. And so um, the anger one feels at losing a loved one or other freedom fighters or at your own anger at being mistreated or uh, the, the scars you carry around have to heal and you have to move on to, um, to find... Um, each new day, as, as there is hope, there is uh, life. Or as there is life, there is hope. So I, as I tell myself, every day we had hope that one day the Soviet Union would collapse, one day we would be free, one day we would um, not have to fear speaking out uh, or reading things or reading articles or reading books or, or doing things that were... Uh, not prohibited. So those are things that you always have to hope that the Soviet Union would collapse and the whole system would free. And in fact, it did happen. But it, for me, it took 17 years of my life to see that happen. And you say confronting our weaknesses, doubts, and fears is one means to overcome dictatorships based in ignorance and insecurity. So we've really got to look ourselves in the mirror and somehow deal with those kinds of doubts and fears because most people have them when you're dealing with this kind of authoritarian oppression. Sure, sure. I mean, everyone would say, as my aunts and uncles around me would say, you know, some of them would raise those doubts. And these are people who are older than you and Surrounded by you're surrounded with them, they say, you know, you're wasting your time. 
You don't think you're going to, you don't seriously think that the Soviet Union is going to collapse, you? You don't really think that they're going to give up their, their weapons for you and just because you want it uh, to happen. And so, yeah, you have to overcome those doubts. And, you know, they said, you, aren't you fearful of what could happen to you if you raise your voice against them? And I said, well, you know, you have to band together and do it in secret. Make sure no one knows about it until you can really push back. And uh, in that sense, the press and the media was was very helpful because they brought it to the attention. And even they were uh, fearful of being closed down um, and losing out. So ignorance is is always a factor in it. That and fear is a big factor and doubt of whether you will actually succeed. Um, but you had to keep pushing uh, to keep that freedom alive. Does peace come to the heart and mind even when you're in the midst of all this adversity? It comes in small portions. <laughs> Steve, it's, it's hard to mm-hmm. uh, keep it all the time, but it comes in small portions. It's like a little dessert. Sometimes you get it when you get a little victory. And you get a little, you find that you're pushing back and they're falling behind. And you know you made peace. You you gained some ground. And you, you feel peace. You feel like you've gained some victory. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a battle within the soul. And it's a battle on the streets and in the homes and in society at large. But each time one has to make an effort to find that peace and convert, and usually people fall behind behind you when they see that you are successful in doing what you're doing. So success is a great uh, teacher because the fearful then raise their voices and said, "I was with you all along," <laughs> you know. Um, so there are some people who said, "Oh, we we always knew you would do it. You know, we <laughs> always knew it well. What sort of cure when things were tough?" And um, some of the uh, my teachers, for example, would say, "You know, we didn't know you were behind the total revolution. You know, we thought you were a nice, good little, hardworking kid who came first in class." Um, so, but no, I was behind <laughs> the total revolution, which was and not so much the um, um, establishment at the time. We have about a minute left, Kathleen. Tell us the mm-hmm. importance of meditation. Oh, meditation is just a process that will help uh, people find their inner beings. It really is a way of exploring the self that no one else shares with you but yourself. So it's important in any number of ways because it's an area, if you open up a space, each person has to find that space within themselves where they have that conversation or the find the peace to make uh, enormous changes in their lives and plan, execute, and make um, self-realized thoughts uh, dominate the mind. 
So meditation is enormously important, and it's been proven now in all uh, sorts of um, medical literature, and scientists, and, and stress re- reduction, and proactive thinking, healing, in any number of ways um, is important. I, I, know. I can tell you from the medical literature and my own experience is that any kind of adversity uh, is first best handled after a session in meditation. And the longer you can keep it up, the better for you. Because it, it surely is a path to personal success in any number of ways. The title of the book, I Am the Change I Seek, A Primer in Self-Realization. Kathleen, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on exlibris.com if you go to their bookstore. It's also available on barnesbn.com as an audio book, as an e-book, and also on uh, iamthechangeiseek.com. You can go to my website and also on Amazon.com and um, it's available in CD and hardcover, softcover, as well as ebook. Thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you, Steve. I enjoy talking with you. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter DeVette Live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management. The holistic approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness. How emotions are directly related to physical illness and how to read your body like a book. Dr. Devan will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent Live, every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, 
Resolve and Fortitude, Microsoft's Secret Power Broker Breaks His Silence, and the author is Joachim Kempen. And J.K. joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, J.K. Hey, how are you? Great to have you with us. This is uh, just an honor to have you with us, one of the pioneers of Microsoft at one time, uh, J.K. led Microsoft's OEM division that was responsible for sales to PC manufacturers, and he literally drove the deals that made Microsoft Windows the world's dominating operating system. Of course, worked very closely with Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, uh, now is retired, been retired for a number of years. So he's, like he says in his title, he's breaking his silence, and he wants to help us see inside the big corporate giant, uh, Microsoft, and uh, understand some of the things that went on behind closed doors and uh, some of the things that Microsoft missed out on, right? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, Because when I was around, we had an incredible run, Uh, not just with Windows, but with other products as well. But when I left, uh, after Microsoft partially lost the uh, big antitrust trial, um, these things didn't continue as well uh, as I was used to. And you go into details about that trial in your book. Yeah, I was on that uh, famous witness stand in Washington, D.C., because I was the person who sold Windows to PC manufacturers and uh, uh, the way we did this, uh, the government didn't like. And uh, so I was grilled uh, by David Bowie's, uh, the prosecutor the government hired uh, quite extensively for two days. And uh, uh, it was an incredible experience, uh, not necessarily a positive one, <laughs> but you know what? Uh, it was an experience, and uh, I survived it. And, of course, you were painted, uh, Microsoft was painted as the evil empire back then. Uh, <laughs> that must have been uh, uh, very frustrating. It was frustrating because there was basically a highly biased judici- judicial system which went after the company, uh, uh, basically uh, led by the Department of Justice, and uh, they were steered up by a bunch of defeated uh, uh, competitors who were basically lusting for revenge. And in some way, they succeeded uh, because antitrust laws, uh, as we all know, uh, are not necessarily fair uh, to large companies. Of course, Microsoft was responsible for stealing the thunder from IBM and uh, very successfully. And then, of course... We now have to deal with the younger generation. Uh, Microsoft, how do you view their dealing with the needs and demands of the younger generation? I was in the middle of that battle with IBM, and uh, I think we succeeded very well to beat their operating so- uh, system product, which uh, uh, IBM at that point in time called OS2 or OS2 Warp. Uh, but that, as that worked, what has not worked over the last 10 years is to conquer the Facebook generation for Microsoft. Uh, I believe that Apple has uh, done a really good job 
in bringing out uh, very innovative products and uh, the social media craze which exists in that new generation and the demand for a mobile computing platform which exists in that generation came together and left Microsoft behind. So how did that happen when you have such brilliant people at the top, including yourself, uh, a, a lot of voices? I'm sure things were said back maybe even in the 90s about what could happen. How did Microsoft miss out on this? Microsoft, uh, I believe, missed out on it because uh, after the company partially lost that antitrust trial, uh, the company got scared. And... Uh, that means it wasn't as forcefully pursuing market share as it had done before. I believe that is one reason. The second reason is that there were a lot of internal power struggles. And uh, there were the billboys, bill I mean, the guys who were always looking up uh, at Bill Gates, and then there were the Steve Ballmer boys, and they were always looking up at Steve Ballmer. And they sometimes um, couldn't find a way uh, to cooperate with each other. And so when you get this whole combination, uh, the competitor, in this case in particular Apple and Google, uh, they did a job on the company by sometimes hiring people away from Microsoft and sometimes by just uh, being faster on their feet and uh, and basically responding to the technology needs and desires uh, of that new generation with very good mobile products. And uh, uh, when you add to that services like you can get for free from Facebook or Twitter, uh, you basically uh, have an unstoppable situation. Now, you reveal your view of Bill Gates, uh, obviously, from a person who worked very closely with him. Uh, Bill Gates changed? Bill Gates changed a lot. Um, when I saw him the first time, uh, he was a very uh, interesting uh, young man who was very ambitious. But when I left the company, uh, he had broken down. And uh, the trial had gotten to him, and, uh, you know, people called him the next Rockefeller, meaning a monopolist, and uh, he couldn't stomach that. And uh, so uh, when that happened, uh, he was trying to cling to some kind of empire which he had built, and uh, that didn't work out very well for him. I respect Bill Gates. I have no problems to say that. But the man has changed tremendously, and this has gone further because he's really no longer in Microsoft. He's officially chairman, but uh, at the same time, uh, the man who runs Microsoft today is my former boss, Steve Barmer. And how do you view Steve at this time? Uh, where is he the man for the hour for Microsoft? Steve is a very uh, uh, good businessman, no doubt about it. Uh, the question is, does he have the foresight uh, when it comes to technology, and does he have the right crew around him uh, to run the company? I see Steve more like a chief operating officer than a chief executive officer. And at the same time, I have a lot of respect for Steve, 
the way he has done, uh, he has run the company. He has done extremely well when it came to growing revenues and a growing profit. He's a numbers man. And for that reason, I think uh, he needs to basically think about uh, his uh, position in the company uh, because what it takes is really to inspire a new generation of developers inside the company. And I am not sure if he's the right guy to do so. Because back in the late 90s, you already were looking at this iPad kind of, uh, this type of uh, new generation of computers that has just taken the nation and the world by storm. Yes, we did. And we even had prototypes uh, up and running. Uh, But at the same time, uh, the technology wasn't ready uh, and it would have had to be built at that time probably on an old operating system which we were still selling called MS-DOS and not MS-Windows. And so management didn't feel good about that and so they basically shut that effort down. So it just got dropped and, uh, of course, the rest is history with Apple. Yes, they dropped it then, and then they came out with some kind of a tablet version for Windows in 2000. And even that didn't really uh, make it for a very simple reason. The technology wasn't ready, and when the technology was ready, Microsoft had somehow lost interest uh, in a tablet, and the OEM partners, which Microsoft had, uh, had lost interest in that, so Apple had the foresight, jumped on the bandwagon, and the rest was history. Now, do you think Microsoft can make up ground? Uh, you know, it's the giant, it's the, it's the big gorilla, and can it ever regain uh, number one in that new area of an iPad type of product? It is very tough to come from behind. And um, I hope uh, that Windows 8 is a good first step in that direction. Uh, it is extremely hard to project naturally uh, if uh, Windows 8 and Windows 8 tablets and Windows 8 phones uh, can really take significant market share away from Apple. Uh, but I'm optimistic. Uh, Microsoft has one thing. It has resolve and it has fortitude and it has money. And I think the company will use this to gain market share, maybe under different leadership. But I think that at the end of the day, um, the company is determined to turn the tide. Why is Windows 8 just the, the best system, operating system that we have today? Why, what makes Windows 8, what sets it apart? The first thing which sets it apart for sure is the, uh, the, the way you operate it, so the interface. So it has this health structure, uh, and you can say this is uh, something Apple has done uh, before on the phones and on the, on the iPads. But, you know, uh, it's a well-thought-out uh, concept. And compared to Apple, Microsoft is trying to basically implement this concept uh, in a very unique way in Windows phones and Windows tablets and Windows PCs. And so the user experience 
gets suddenly very um, unique because every device which comes out from Microsoft, you can basically operate uh, with the same keystrokes uh, or with the same gestures. And uh, no company has achieved that yet. And uh, in addition to that, we look at the uh, huge uh, application base uh, which is uh, behind Windows, um, that is a very promising uh, step into the right direction. And um, I have a son uh, who has seen, who is actually using Windows 8, and he is very, very happy. And his comment was, yes, this is an interface for my generation. Why did the press label you, JK, as Bill Gates' enforcer? Uh, I do not know why they do that, but they do it. Uh, <laughs> I think it was invented by some journalist uh, for the very simple reason that I refuse to give interviews. Uh, and, you know, when that happens, uh, all kinds of monitors uh, get bestowed on you. Uh, they always thought that I drove some hard deals with some of our customers, which I don't think is totally true. And uh, because I had no information about me, they sensationalized me to some degree. Let it be. Well, it's a incredibly great part of our uh, high-tech history uh, here in the United States and all over the world. And you were part of it. Uh, when did you first start with Microsoft? I started with Microsoft in 1983. I was probably around number 400 uh, on the, the employment list. And how old were you? Oh boy, uh, I was, I believe, 42 years old. Of, uh, yeah, 42 years old at that time. And uh, I nearly didn't get hired because the company didn't want to hire people over 40. <laughs> it's a joke <laughs> when you think about it. <laughs> and, uh, the average age at that time was 23 years, right? So right. you can understand. Right, and of course the uh, the whole it seems like uh, the whole computer industry, the whole internet industry is just filled with young people. So it makes sense, uh, even uh, in your forties, relatively young. But what did you bring so unique to Microsoft at that moment in time? I had some uh, experience with. I worked for Apple uh, out of Paris. I had some other experiences with some. Uh, manufacturers of computer systems, uh, these so-called minis, uh, Digital Equipment Corporation. I worked uh, for uh, National Semiconductors for some time. Uh, so I had some good experience uh, with software, software design. Uh, I understood hardware and hardware design. So it was, it was a nice match. And let's not forget, uh, I have a diploma in mathematics, and I think uh, people in Microsoft at that time, for sure, uh, liked some people with some logic. And as you look toward the future, JK, uh, for the Internet, for the computer industry, anything stand out to you, uh, you know, anything you can uh, comment on or give us a view into the future? I think the next uh, exciting thing we're going to see is uh, the integration of television into this whole um, internet um, and computer age. Uh, we have seen some of it already over the last four or five years, 
But I think we're going to see a, a huge revolution there where the television uh, screen basically uh, will be part of a totally integrated uh, home network and maybe even office network. And uh, a lot of things you can do today just on the PC, you can do easily on that big screen uh, because the technology is there. And I know that there are some companies called Google and Apple, they're working on it, and, I'm, and Microsoft is working on it as well. And Windows 8 has the advantage here in a certain way because if Microsoft combines some of the technologies they today have for their Xbox system, which is their game console, uh, and combine them uh, with Windows 8, um, they may be able to make a huge step forward and gain a significant market share in this new segment. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Ex Libris On Air. The title of Joachim Kempin's book is Resolve and Fortitude, Microsoft's Secret Power Broker Breaks His Silence. J.K., tell us how to get your book. Oh, you can buy it at uh, uh, Amazon, and you can buy it at Barnes & Nobles, and I believe it is listed on the Ex Libris website as well. And uh, there, it's available as, as a hardcover, or you can have it on Nook, and you can have it on Kindle, any way you want to. Any way you want returns it today. After Fantastic. These uh, thank you so much, J.K., for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Okay, thank you for... Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. And learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswald is the creator of the Rockstar System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from their competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, CraigDuswalt.com, so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field, so more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Duswalt, Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Do-Over, 
And the author is Carol Ann Leathers, and Carol joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Carol. Hello. Great to have you with us. Uh, I'm going to read what you've written about your book. You say this, Do-Over is a book about child abuse and its long-standing consequences. It's the story about a woman's wish to live her life over again, prevent the abuse, and live the life she believed she would have lived if the abuse had never happened. Well, that's a tremendous, tremendous um, uh, thought. Uh, that's uh, I'm sure there's many who would like to do that. The abuse is so prevalent, isn't it? Oh, yes, it certainly is. Um, I think it's much more prevalent than um, believe, certainly. And this is your story? Um, In part, yes, it is my story. Yes, yes. So you speak um, from experience, that's what I'm saying. You speak from, unfortunately, experience. The book is based on um, my life um, in terms of the actual abuse that occurred. Um, it is written as a story of fiction um, in terms of the do-over, in terms of the principal characters um, having her wish granted to be able to go back to a point in her life prior to when the abuse begins and um, prevent the abuse and then live her life again. Um, so in that sense, it's fictional. But the actual acts of abuse, um, the account of Webb's life prior to the do-over, is based on my life. And so you actually went through a scene, or were there more than one scene of sexual abuse by Reb's brother? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Um, I... Um, this is this is very difficult to even talk about. Um, there's only actually one scene that I fully write about, and it was probably the most painful um, scene to write, um, and some of the worst of the sexual abuse. But I felt it necessary to um, put that there so that people could understand that this was not just physical abuse, but also sexual and the combination of the two and, and its profound effect on Reb, the character, and of course myself as the writer. Right. And, and of course it unfortunately became more than a, just an emotional pain and damage, it became a physical damage. Yes, it did. Um, from the time that um, I was, I am guessing, four, um, possibly three, until I was approximately 14 years old, um, I was regularly beaten by this person, um, often thrown downstairs, shoved downstairs, um, thrown into bushes, um, a variety of techniques were used. Um, and as a result of that, um, Later on in life, I would find out that um, my legs and pelvic area, um, ribs, etc., had been fractured. And um, because of the fact that I had never received any medical treatment for any of those injuries, um, they had healed somewhat um, poorly. 
and um, things happened um, to my body that that made those fractures reopen, arthritis formed, and so forth, and um, eventually impaired my ability to walk, um, and certainly impaired. Um, let me see. I don't know what the proper way to say it is. Um, um, made me fatigue very easily. Um, eventually resulted in my losing a career that I had worked hard for um, because I could no longer physically keep up with it. Um, so a lot of long-standing consequences, both physically and emotionally. Um, I still walk with a cane at times and um, can um, get be so um, impaired as to be in a wheelchair. Um, so really the, the consequences have been very severe and very long-standing. How old is Reb when she finally decides to ask God for a very, very special favor? She is, um, I believe she is 50, 50 years old. 50? She's 50. So she's it's, lived a miserable she's... life up till that moment. Well, she's lived a miserable life in terms of the child abuse, the sexual abuse, and the consequences of it. But a lot of her life has not been miserable. No, she's, she's accomplished a lot in her life. Um, she has a family. Um, she, she has um, a very close family with the exception of that one person. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's had some very good times in her life. But... It's always clouded with that 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 blackness, that darkness of of her past. Um, and now she's fifty, and she's she's still feeling those consequences. She's she's not walking well. She she's again not able to work. Um, right. And but but she hasn't lived a horrible life, not by any means. In fact, she's overcome a lot and accomplished quite a bit with her life. But now she's um, at 50, she's in danger of losing everything again. And it brings her to that point of desperation, wondering if I could, you know, if I could go back, how could I do things differently if, if the abuse was prevented, if my body was whole and strong? So um, she pleads with God for, as you've titled your book, this do-over. That's right. She pleads with God to let her go back and have a chance to do it all over again. And um, God grants her wish. So she's how and old again? So she's how old again? She's, she's 50 years old when she prays this prayer, or when she makes this prayer. Um, yes, she's 50. She's just a couple of days before her 51st birthday. And she wakes up, and how old is she? She's four years old. Four years old, and the abuse <laughs> has never happened. Right, right. She's, she's four years old. Um, she wakes up. She's in um, a place that she knows but hasn't seen in 40 years. Um, and um, she wakes up. She looks above, up above her, and she realizes that she's in a bunk bed because um, she had shared a bedroom with her younger brother when she was very small. And um, she, she gets up, she looks in the mirror, and there's this four-year-old, very tiny um, little girl looking back at her. 
um, and um, basically that's where it begins. And it begins on the day that she first remembers being beaten by her brother. Um, um, and eventually she she's able to stop that first beating. So his his uh, still his behavior is there, but she's able to avoid it or stop it. She is because when she's she she's four years old. Um, this is, she, she's back in 1964, and so she's four years old, but she has all of the memories of the 50 year old Reb. Mm. All of them. Wow. She has the entire lifetime of memory. She knows. She knows what is going to happen. She knows what the consequences will be, and um, she also realizes that she can't tell anybody. Right. So that becomes real clear to begin with. Um, but because she knows, she's able to prevent what it's to be, and she does. So she prevents it and moves on. Uh, I mean, are there a, a number of times that it is attempted, but she's able to prevent it? Yes. Mm. Yes. Yes. I, that, I have to say that that was one scene um, that I actually really enjoyed writing. Um, it's the first scene where she prevents the first beating. Um, in fact, I can remember chuckling <laughs> right. um, when I when I when I wow. wrote, wrote it because I thought, oh, if I really could have done that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that was the fun part of the book. Um, but anyway, from that point on, she um, lives her life again. She she wants to be successful. She wants to prevent um, being hurt. Um, and her, her idea of success the second time around is becoming very wealthy and powerful. Um, because in her mind, the first time, all of that ability was taken from her. Um, or all of that potential was taken from her. This time, no one is going to stop her. Her brother is, the beatings, um, and so forth are not going to be there to prevent her from um, reaching her what she sees as her full potential, um, so she takes a completely different path than Reb did the first time around, um, and she has a very different attitude about life. Um, and she does eventually she does become wealthy and powerful, but she also becomes isolated and um, lonely. Because she has, she has having those the fears and um, all of the emotional issues that a child for, of abuse typically has, and she, the, the, Rebecca, the, the second character, has those all of those memories, all of those emotions. It prevents her from forming any trusting relationships. Um, a lot of the loving relationships that Reb, the first character, had, Rebecca, the second character, never forms because she's afraid of them. Um, She's afraid that people will always hurt her, um, that somehow someone, someone, something is going to derail what she believes she has to do. And in the end, she ends up 50 years old again, very wealthy, very strong, but yet very lonely. And um, the one, there is one thing 
in her life, in the second life, this do-over, that she doesn't have, that Reb, the original character, had. The one thing that Reb loves the most, um, is the most proud of. But Rebecca, the second character, can never have. And that is her son. Because she prevents every event that would ever lead to having a family. Um, and so in the end, she has to make a very profound choice. Um, and she realizes that neither life is perfect. Neither life would ever be perfect because everything that she's done, um, everything that Reb has done is somehow colored because of the abusive past and that she has to um, figure that out first. Right. And and because she, she, she ends up a very lonely woman, um, she will eventually make a choice to make that second prayer to come back. And um, God grants that second, that second wish, and she comes back. Who's, who, she's, she's, hmm? who, is Ar, who is Arthur? Oh, Arthur. Arthur is, um, he's the angel. Ah. Of the do-over. Okay. I, I felt that there needed to be um, one part that would explain how the do-over occurred, and I wanted it to be at the end of the book because I was hoping, um, in fact, I, I'm very much hoping that, that um, this do-over, um, this first book is not going to be the only book. I'd like it to mm. be a series or turn into a series of books. And Arthur is um, being the angel of the do-over. Uh, already has his next pupil or his next candidate for do-over. Well, in writing this book, has been a help to you? Uh, yes, um, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's it's been um, <clears throat> part of the healing process for me. Um, it took 52, 51, 52 years to get to this point, um, but certainly writing the book was a big part of that healing process. Um, I think in terms of um, acceptance, um, acceptance of my disabilities and um, acceptance of my past and what it is, it is what it is, and, and I think I'm, I'm learning to live with it better um, and also understanding myself and finally beginning to, to say, okay, Carol, you know, you really, you're an okay person. You're, you're, um, you had these things happen to you. It was tragic, um, but you can live with it and you can move on and you can somehow keep working toward living the life that you want to live. Um, I'm not there yet. I don't know that a person who comes from this kind of background ever is, can, can ever say, I'm there. I've got. I, I understand it all. I'm. I'm very. I'm strong. I'm all that I should be. But I certainly have come a long ways toward acceptance, and um, a lot more understanding than I had before. And I came. I think partly through do over. Partly through um, being honest with um, all of the negativity, um, and. Um, all of the different issues that or feelings and emotions that a person from abuse has, you know, the, um, the reactivity, the, the 
the lack of trust, um, the sort of um, the ability to almost derail yourself, um, the lack of self-confidence. Um, there's so many negative things that um, writing this book really helped me get a grasp on. And now I can, when I'm in some kind of a pattern that I really shouldn't be, I can begin to recognize it. Well, congratulations. And congratulations, Carol. We, it's really good to hear you talk that way. This is an incredible emotional journey for you and for the reader. And we appreciate you sharing your story with us. Uh, Carol Ann Leathers, the author. Uh, the book is Do Over. Carol, tell us how to get your book. Um, you can get it online through Barnes & Noble um, or through Ex Libris um, or through Amazon Books. I'm, I'm working on, hopefully, we'll have it actually in bookstores in time. I'm not quite sure how that's going to happen, but that's what I'm hoping for. But for right now, it can be um, purchased online, either in ebook or in um, hardcover or softcover through those three places. Thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you very much. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.